Exploring how we can transform our communities in the 21st century with the support of St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global, and me learning. Welcome. This is the Community Safety Podcast with your host, Jim Nixon. Today, the Community Safety Podcast has a special episode where we ask the question, can criminals reform? Can they spend the majority of their adult life in prison and then one day decide that they need to change and they can break away from a life of crime? My guest fits that profile. He only spent the majority of his adult life in prison, but he's now making some amazing progress. Take a listen to a snippet of today's episode still in a £20,000 car that then gets sold for scrap or gets used in another robbery or whatever. So you're kind of patted on the back even more. You're climbing that ladder like most people climb the ladder in society. Just because it's the criminal element, you've still got ladders, you've still got a hierarchy. There's still the same things going on in each kind of separate worlds. It's just that they're in separate worlds. The, The processes are still the same. It's now time for the Community Safety Podcast. Welcome to the Community Safety Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Nixon, and I've been involved in community safety for over 25 years. This podcast will explore how we can transform communities in the 21st century. I'm delighted that today's guest is David Breakspear. David was only 10 years old when he first when he was first arrested. Within a few years, he was excluded from education and took his first steps towards prison. David spent a large proportion of his life in prison. In 2015, he decided he'd had enough of prison and the life that always led him to return. A complete change of attitude, David has turned his life around. He attributes his success to the education he received in prison after he took every educational opportunity available to him. David is now doing some brilliant work around prison reform and also involved in transformed communities across the UK. David, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on today's podcast. Ah, oh, thank you, Jim. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I know we've been uh, we've been sort of chatting for a number of months now around various bits and pieces. So it's just brilliant to finally get you on, and uh, we're going to ask you a few questions today. And I'm sure the audience will absolutely love this one. So I wanted to kick it off. Um, really about your early life really your sort of growing up years um because i think it's really important that we sort of get some insight into people's backgrounds in their early early years so could you um could you give give us a bit of background uh yeah um i grew up in the southeast of uh england in kent a place called thanet ramsgate margate Broadstairs. um i was the youngest of six i was born in 1969 um I've got two brothers, three sisters, and apart from growing up in a large family and kind of, especially being the youngest and all that brings with it, um, I don't really have any unhappiness, if that makes sense, from from, from the family home. Um, yeah, I was always being picked on by my brothers and sisters. Um, I was lucky if my mum and dad got my name right the first time round because they had five five other ones to choose from. Um, uh, I make jokes that we shared everything. Um, I even shared my brothers and sisters' clothes to some point. Um, 
fortunately my brothers more than my sisters uh but yeah so my home life was was one that was I suppose yeah quite happy I've got no I've got no I I, I always look back to my childhood at home and it's always with a smile on my face um what happened in respect of the sexual abuse that that took place when I was quite young I was only eight that happened away from the home um and I suppose it become a secret that that as a child you kind of get told to keep um by the adult um and bribed to keep um with with toys and cash and so on and so forth um so it was something that I didn't really deal with I suppose or talk about to, to anybody else I mean there was a, a friend of mine that was also involved I won't name him because I don't know whether or not he dealt with it um over the years but um there were two of us that were involved two that I know of I mean I, I wouldn't be shocked if there was going to be uh, a number of others that were involved with this with this particular individual but that was kind of where I suppose the 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 adverse um, childhood experiences come from. How did that come about, David? In terms of you said it was a did you say it was a shopkeeper? How did that actually yeah. come about? Um, from obviously it was what forty three years ago now. So it's it's although it's very hard to remember details, it's very easy to remember the situation. Um, and it literally was it, it was I'm assuming I can't remember all of it obviously, but I'm assuming it was through grooming um, because me and my mate went back. Uh, and the guy had a toy shop. I mean, I was eight years old. I've got a, a toy shop. That that's that's the ultimate, really, for a sexual predator um, to have a toy shop behind them. But um, so yeah, there there would have been a lot of that involved. But in the end, we, me and my mate, we kind of about why we kind. I don't know why we kept going back. We kept going back because I suppose to us it, it we didn't think that there was anything that was being done wrong. It didn't feel right, but we were eight years old. How could we tell? Um, and of course, we were getting Airfix models and um, Lego and stuff out of it. Um, and yeah, it was. As I say, over the years, over the years, over that year, we kind of built this 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 way out for us. Um, the two of us would turn up together, but only one of us would go in the shop and. It was an old style door that had a bell above it. So every time you open the door from the inside or the out, the bell would go. Um, so both of us would go in there. One would hide and he'd come in and mess about with the other boy and kind of go upstairs, which is where his flat was. And that's where you went. Um, but as soon as literally you get to the top of the stairs, the boy that was downstairs went out. So the bell went off again. So he'd have to come back down and the boy would come down, either myself or my mate whoever was up there and leave so it never we we kind of started um using it to our own advantage um that was when we kind of started to steal stuff um obviously uh with him out of the way um we had a, a minute or two to quickly rush about grab a few bits and then leave the shop and then the other one would come down oh what'd you get what'd you get and that kind of i suppose come on top we got caught a few times and he ended up banning us from the shop. So I don't know whether or not he see a pattern of us understanding what was starting to go wrong um, and didn't want to take the chance of us saying anything. I don't know, but it literally, it, it stopped as soon as it started, if that makes sense. 
it's um that sort of era i think it was a time when you know predators like that could you know in the you're talking sort of the 70s then people could get away with it kind mm. of quite easily couldn't they back then you know i think it was i'm not saying it isn't rife now because it clearly is but i think more people now are um arrested for those type of crimes where back then i think there would have been a number of offenders that probably would never have ever been arrested or even spoken to by the police, would they? No, I mean, everyone was quite shocked with Jimmy Savile, but I think that was more of a norm um, than it was a, a surprise, really. I think a lot of that went on um, 60s, 70s, even the 50s. I mean, um, and it's not just... We look back at history and you see all these situations with children's homes and youth custody centres, especially detention centres, with Melhamsley, um, if I said that correctly, Melhamsley uh, Detention Centre, um, which has been in the news quite a lot as well. So it was something that was kind of, I mean, if you were born in the 60s and the 70s, I think you were very lucky if you did escape sexual abuse from an adult. Yeah, I think I think it was pretty rife, mate, I've got to say. So you're saying that obviously after that sexual abuse took place, obviously there was you and your friend, but you never disclosed it to... Nope your mum or your dad or any of your siblings? No, not at all. Uh, and then two years later, or just under two years later, I then contracted meningitis. Um, I think there's two. There's a viral and a bacterial one, and the viral one is the one that kind of can make you ill. It's the bacterial one that can kill you. And, and I was fortunate that I had the viral one, or the other way around. It was a long time ago, and I can't remember. But um, And I was in Canterbury Hospital for quite a while, and that kind of, I, I felt to blame, um, uh, not so much for not saying anything to anybody because I, I still didn't say anything. I mean, I don't know. It's <laughs> what I was going through at the time, Jim, when I was eight, nine and ten is easy for me to answer now, but wasn't so easy for me to answer then. So um, I can, whether I'm right or wrong now, when I look back and kind of say what it is that I say in respect of what I thought, um, to what I was actually thinking at the time. I mean, two different things entirely. Um, but I, I I do remember a lot of kind of being lost, um, panic attacks, anxiety attacks. I, I, my bedroom was at the back, my parents' bedroom, and my, my brothers and... Who was at home at the time? I think two sisters and a brother were at home at the time. And... Uh, I used to, in between there was this like landing and I used to sit on the landing and, and be out of breath all the time and have panic attacks at two, three o'clock in the morning and 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, I'd get in my mum and dad's bed, <laughs> obviously wake them up and they'd tell me to sod off. But um, it was, yeah, and, and I always found um, with a lot of siblings, um, obviously I had a lot of places to go and a lot of places to stay, but... I was never comfortable away from home. I could never settle away from home. I'd spend one night somewhere and whatever sibling would have to take me home again because I'd be too distressed and too upset. Yeah, that makes total sense, to be honest with you. Absolute total sense that, you know, it's kind of made you even more vulnerable. Even though you were young at the time, it's made you even more vulnerable and um, in need of that kind of, that home feel, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I knew I didn't... I mean, at the end of the day, I was staying with my brothers and sisters. So, and 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 I love my brothers and sisters. I mean, as much as as much, I was a pain in the ass. Don't get me wrong, but as much as they picked on me, which it's family, isn't it? It's what happens. So, I do. I love my brothers and sisters. So, 
it was very strange why I wouldn't want to stay there. I mean, I even struggle with that now when I look back and think, why was I like that? Why? And I was a shitbag as well when I was in their houses. I used to, um, for one of my sisters, I used to babysit, and I was always going through stuff. Um, I was always looking through cupboards, and I, I remember one year I found a, a, um, a Christmas present. It was, obviously, it was close to Christmas that they had got me. I think it was Bad by Michael Jackson. I think it was that album, one of those albums. And um, I don't know why. I, I don't know why I'd done those things. Um, probably attention wanting to get caught because I got caught quite often. I got caught often, more often than not, I suppose, um, with things like that at home. Um, but again, why I done them, I don't know. I really don't know why I couldn't stay with my brothers and sisters. It, it, it was weird. Yeah, really weird. Yeah, it's. Um... It's, it, I suppose it just affects people in different ways, David. You know, I think, you know, some people can talk about it. You just buried it, and I think that was your way of dealing with it. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I can only agree with that, Jim. Um, unless we can really go back. Having said, I mean, obviously we'll come to it later on. But I was able to deal with it later on in life um, with speaking to somebody. And as I say, I'm sure we'll come back to that part because yeah. it was many, many years later. So, um, but yeah, it. It was kind of, uh, I mean, I, I, I was struggling. For, I, I remember struggling for an identity, whether or not that was being the youngest of six. Of course, that's going to have a part to play in it under normal circumstances, but then you throw in everything else into the mix. Um, I was always struggling for an identity, I think. And um, again, being the youngest of six and not having your name called out correctly each time and then going to school, you're not like this, you're not like that, or you're not like your brother, you're not like your sister. It was very difficult for me to, to actually grab on to an identity. Um, got to a point, I think I was about 13, um, and I was at the local youth club, Concord Youth Club, and I was playing football for them. Uh, and I, for like proper football, not just on the evenings, but we were playing league football. So there'd be many a write-up in the newspaper, and it's like, who's Tony Breaksbit? I actually changed my first name. Um, why, I don't know. Um, but yeah, my, it's like, who's this Tony Breaksbit that you're playing football with? Well, that's me. Why, why aren't you just, I, would like the, I like the name Tony. It was weird. Uh, that I, and I, it's kind of weird as well, because I kept my surname and changed my first name. So who knows? Who knows what that, kind of uh what what drew that out leading on from that i was um i was just interested to see after the sexual abuse how that then affected your your school life and your education uh i to be honest jim i can't really remember much in respect to school i mean i can remember, i can remember a few things from school it's like infant school which would have been before this the the, the abuse i was still a little shitbag um, but then I think that was more to do with the fact that I had three sisters and two brothers go to a school before me. So the, the school had a, a kind of pigeonholed idea of what I was going to be like, and I wasn't like that. So um, I don't know whether or not they tried to uh, form me into one of my brothers or one of my sisters, and I fought against that, or I was just a little shitbag. I mean, it's not as if the sex... I, I was still naughty before the sexual abuse. I mean, I was still doing not bad things, but I can remember sort of setting fire to things in the park and stuff like that as a kid. 
yeah, it's it's really I don't know. It, it, it's quite strange to to. It's as if it, it, it. I'm watching a documentary sometimes when I look back at that, and uh, and I say that as if I'm kind of sitting here picking over scabs all the time, and I'm really not. I'm kind of protected against that now. And I don't know if that is also a reason and, and why I haven't got all the answers myself is because some of that was shut down. Um, but it really wasn't until after the meningitis, I suppose, that that's where the real badness started to happen with school. And, and then I, it was in my last year of junior school um, and I didn't really finish that properly. And the secondary school that I went to um, was one of the worst schools in the area. Uh, it was always finishing since league tables. League tables weren't uh, around when I was at school, but since the league tables were introduced, it was always finishing in the top three, if not the top one worst school in the country. Um, there was uh, the, the teacher college. They used to cry when they were told that they were gonna be sent to our school. I mean, that's how bad it was. And I'm not making up, there's a book online um, I should try and recall the name of it, um, where the guy actually writes about the area because it's, the school was in the middle of a council estate, um, uh, Newton Council estate in Ramsgate. And it was uh, it was quite a, a, I don't want to say rough area because it weren't rough, if that makes sense. But then that might have been because I was from round there. Do you know what I mean? Um, other people from outside may have looked at it and gone, Christ, that's rough. But it didn't feel rough. It felt comfortable. It felt like a pair of slippers. Um, so after a few months, I suppose, of secondary school and getting my feet under the table, uh, that was where the, the real bad behaviour started and when it really started to kick in. I was going to ask you a question, just taking you back a little bit. When mm -hmm. we introduced you today, obviously I mentioned that, you know, you committed your first criminal offence at about 10 years of age. What was the... For you, and I know some hot about Davy, but what was your motivation? Sort of, you know, what what was your motivation for that at the time? Uh, do you know what, Jim? I really don't know. However, having said that, whether it's coincidence or not, I I, I can't answer now. Um, I I was arrested for a criminal damage. I'd smashed the window. Coincidentally, the window was the the sh the toy shop was in a row of shops. It was about the fourth shop in. At the beginning. Um, there was, I suppose, there's flats above the shops and, and the first house, the entrance to the flat, sorry, the first shop, the entrance to the flat was at the side, there was an alleyway and that's where this window was. So this window was in the same block as the toy shop and that was the window that I broke. Now, I don't know um, and I cannot remember why it was that specific window, what the situation was at the time, but it is quite coincidental that it would have been 15 yards away from where a, a year year and a half previously i'd been sexually abused for a period of time yeah so possibly a link yeah. it's it's quite interesting actually david a lot of the as you know i'm a former police officer and mm -hmm. a lot of the kids that i arrested for criminal damage probably a little bit older than you you know more sort of 12 13 it's really weird all the you know quite a number of um, of them went on to be quite prolific and it's quite interesting that a lot of them start with criminal damage and then yeah. move up or, or petty theft but then move up to the you know the more serious stuff you know like robberies and assaults and all sorts of things but it's quite interesting I always found that you know that I dealt with a lot of prolific young men 
and uh, when you looked at their track record, they all you always looked at their, uh, their 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 sort of convictions, and it always started with criminal damage. Mm. It is, yeah. I, and, and of course, with with the guys that I've spoke to over the years, and um, when we've sort of discussed things from my past and that, yeah, uh, it's like no way. I was my first one was criminal just uh, criminal damage. No, mine was criminal. Da- oh, mine was criminal damage as well. Yeah, so yeah, you do, and it's and it's. Um, were well is the criminal damage i i mean obviously graffiti is criminal damage back then um setting fire to something was criminal damage smashing a window was criminal damage smashing a bottle in the street was criminal damage so it was kind of um i suppose with what kids are getting the asbos now that's that's a, i mean that's the sort of thing quite of course if asbos were about i don't think i'd have ever been out of the house <laughs> David, I was going to ask you, um, what sort of age were you when you did your first period of detention? Um, well, I was put into the care of the local community, uh, local community, local authority, uh, Children's Home Glebelands in Harrietsham in Maidstone, Kent, um, when I was 15, uh, or just turned 15. However, my first custodial um, was 1985, same year I was 15, and I received four months detention sentence. It was supposed to be short, sharp shock. Um, that was at Blantyre House over in, in Cranbrook in Kent. And how did you find that inside for the first time? I kind of, I think the being uh, under the care of the local authority kind of got me used, I suppose, to being away from home. Um, but that's it. That that <laughs> that was the only thing. Because believe you me, the rest that followed was nowhere near the same or anything you could train for. It was horrible. Um, I sh- I shit myself. Um, not literally, but uh, nearly. Um, I did cry myself to sleep for the guaranteed for the first night. Um, I can remember the the first day and first night as if it was yesterday. Um, kind of what followed after that didn't. Yeah, it's in my memory sort of bank, but it isn't as 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 um, vivid as as what that first day was, the, where the car was parked, where we were stood, who drove me to the detention centre, the weather, everything about that day just sticks in my mind, because it had such an impact on me. Uh, I'm not going to say it was brutal. Um, but then I'm not going to say it was calm either. It was kind of, it, it was a, a an in between. But they they beasted you. They they the whole point of short sharp shot was to break you down, get rid of your attitude, and rebuild a new one. Um, it didn't work, obviously. That's why it didn't last long. But um, after oh, about three weeks, it was uh, you you go up for a regrade after two weeks, I think. Uh, you start off as a grade two, you have a grade one, which is, I suppose, today's equivalent is basic, standard, and enhanced. And that's what it was. Grade two was standard, grade one was basic, and grade three was enhanced. And after three weeks, I was given my grade three, which was kind of a trustee position. We got a smaller dormitory. It was only 10 of us in a dorm. We had our own TV room. Um, got an extra kind of half hour before lights out we had our own so our own bathroom it was still a set of six uh sinks and six toilets and a couple of showers and a bath we had a bath there as well um so really it kind of uh it didn't that short sharp shot if it if it had 
lasted for two weeks, four days, I don't know if I'd ever gone back. But where it kind of extended that a little bit more, um, I got used to it and I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, believe it or not, when I come out, I actually tried joining the army, uh, the Queen's Second Tank Regiment, um, who used to be based in St. Peter's, just outside Ramsgate. I think it's a pub now. Um, but uh, yeah, so, and, and because I had a criminal record, obviously I couldn't join up. Um, uh, and did it make, I don't know, it's bitter's the right word. I didn't feel bitter coming out, but um, I kind of felt, throw at me what you want now. Um, if if that's the worst it gets, which as a kid, detention centre really was the worst, um, bring it on. Um, it kind of, uh, one thing I don't agree with is taking kids into prison uh, to try and scare them away from the prison experience because I don't think that works and I think it's counterproductive. In respect of myself, as I mentioned, the first two weeks and f a few days, it would have worked. Um, but then, like anything, it doesn't take long to get used to something. A couple of weeks and you're soon used to a regime and then a couple of weeks more, you don't want anything else because you're like, hold on a minute, I've got structure, I've got a regime here, I've got routine. I know who I am, I know what I've got to do. I like me. Um, unfortunately, it happened in the wrong environment. So you come out after the, after that stint and what sort of happens then, you've obviously sort of said it didn't work. So was that then just a path towards you continuing to reoffend and then going back inside? What was the sort of... What was the sort of scenario once you came out? Well, detention centre, mate. When I'd when I, I done two detention centres, I'd done Blantyre House in Kent, I'd done Eastfield Park up in Bristol, which is now a female prison. When I come out of female prison, uh, when I come out of female prison, when I come out of Eastwood Park, um, that was in Bristol, I had to travel back to Ramsgate, good few hours for me to get back. I was back an hour and I was already driving a stolen car. It meant nothing. Um, my mates, uh, I was out with my mates, obviously, I've been away for a few months, a couple of drinks, uh, and it was back to normal. It was, as, it was as if, once things happened, they happened, and that's it. It was like everything, like the meningitis, but once they'd gone on, they'd gone on. I personally thought that they didn't exist anymore. Obviously, they were just sitting there and I weren't emotionally mature enough to be able to deal with anything so rather than deal with anything I just ignored it and what point in your in your offending there that you're just discussing when did it start that you became sort of involved in sort of like drugs and you know, class A drugs was that around that class period? A drugs was later on um, class right. A drugs weren't really a thing um, back in the 80s the mid 80s late 80s obviously towards the end of the 80s I suppose with the yuppie period you got cocaine um, it, I mean, even weed, Jim. It, we didn't really hear much of weed. It was Jamaican bush. Uh, it was it was proper um, uh, marijuana then. I mean, you didn't have your skunks and all of this sort of stuff. It was just the hash, and the only difference was you either had black or leb. Um, one was cheaper than the other. Um, so, but I mean, puff. God, I, I must have been about eleven, twelve when I started smoking puff. Um, I was into serious crimes. Um, from a younger age, I mean, 14, committed first-time robbery. Um, and I say committed my first-time robbery, you can imagine there was quite a few of us involved. So being how old I was, my job was probably to hold the newspaper or something, do you know what I mean? But 
I was still, I, I was a part of it. Um, I was there. Um, had I been caught, I'd have been looking at a very long time because of my involvement. Um, I'm not going to, it was something I never got picked up on, so I don't want to give too much away because we don't have statute of limitations in this country. So, but um, there were, <coughs> so it weren't as if uh, the, the exploratory crimes, the inquisitive crimes kind of took place uh, up until the age of kind of 13. That was shoplifting, going out with gangs and stealing cars, but the stealing cars was joyriding. Um, around about 14, 15, especially when I got excluded from school and I started hanging about with adults on more of a full-time basis, the joyriding become driving a car to here for someone else to pick up to be used in this, um, taking cars off to scrapyards. I mean, we were scrapping cars twice, three times a week for a bit of extra cash in your pocket. Um, so, I mean, there, there, there was, as I say, even just the, the joyriding element soon become a business element or a criminal enterprise. I say criminal enterprise, it sounds like mafia or something, but you know what I mean, it, it become a criminal. I mean, it was organized crime. There was, there was more than three of us involved um we were we were doing commercial burglaries we were we were um doing other scams credit cards kiting as it was called then with the uh, fraudulent credit cards and checkbooks um see it was just really more what led to me getting my first sentence was more my mental health than it was my yes it was criminal activity that got me put away obviously but it was my mental health side it was violence it was uh i'd i'd um uh, beat up a, a, a youth club worker um, with a rounders bat. I didn't do too much damage, and that's why I only got two months. But uh, and then I got two months consecutive uh, for stealing cars, stealing. I had a load of TICs taken in considerations. Um, so there was, there was, it was there. Do you know what I mean? If if someone with the skills and the knowledge and experience that we have now, and the way people are talking about things these days. Had we had that then, someone would have gone, my God, this uh, not a serial killer, but a, a, a full-on cr criminal, if, you, if, you, if that makes sense, yeah. How did you, how did you view the police back then? Hated them. I hated them, hated them. Um, but then it was, it was a them and us, it was cat and mouse. Um, kind of, mice are scared of cats, but they don't know why. I mean, how does a mouse know what a cat is unless it's gone to school and be taught, you know what I mean? So... Really, it was just that that them and us. It was you were the enemy, um, the same way as uh, bouncers stop you coming in nightclub. They were the enemy. Uh, the the floor walkers in the amusement arcades. They were the enemy. The store detectives were the enemy. The truancy officers were the enemy. Teachers, to some degree, were the enemy. Um, so it really was a them and us. Um, so. It wasn't so much the authoritarian side of it um, as it was the them and us side. Yeah, I get it. I, um, I mean, I, I always sort of had quite a good relationship with a lot of the people that I arrested. Um, but you did come across the odd one or two that didn't matter how sort of uh, how much you tried, you know, they literally would absolutely hate you. And there's actually mm. a funny story. The one, the one day I went into this guy's house and he absolutely hated me with a passion. And as I walked in, his uh, his two kids were playing uh, Call of Duty, 
And they were basically there with the guns going, killing Nixon, killing Nixon. And they absolutely hated me with a passion. And I'll always, rem- I'll always remember that. Yeah, it uh, brings back some interesting oh, memories. Don't worry. There's, does... a, there's a few that I could have um, older than that yeah. about how we were on the duty back then, I can tell you. Yeah. Can, uh, yeah. yeah. On, a, on a serious note, um, how do you think your offending and all the stuff you were getting involved in sort of affected your family? Um, I know you've obviously said that you were sort of put into care, but you know, how do you think it affected them? You know, when it all started to sort of blow up. Well, the care was more to do with the the courts and the police. Um, it was, the, as I say, I didn't have asbos, and they just literally had enough of me, Jim. Um, uh, I was at a book launch not so long ago, or say not so long ago, about a year and a half, two years ago, and I'd met Jonathan Aitken, um, and obviously Jonathan Aitken, former MP, former prisoner, uh, and now he's a prison chaplain, but I met him, and I and he used to be the MP for Thanet South, and we was having a laugh with him, he, he remembered my mum, um, and and, and I, I mentioned on the public kind of platform that, me and my mates were probably responsible for about 85% of the crime in Thanet. Um, put one of us away, you'd have a 20% drop in crime rate. We were that uh, prolific. Um, so it wasn't really my family um, that kind of gave up. They, they never gave up. Um, they weren't enamoured. Uh, I was the only one really that was in and out of trouble that much. I, I don't recall, I know kind of one of my sisters got in trouble a couple of times but nothing serious um and my older brothers and sisters i'm not i don't recall them ever having any involvement with the police that doesn't mean to say they didn't have issues in life anyway they had their own problems uh relationship problems and job problems employment problems things like that um but yeah so and I, i don't want to jump ahead but when i when i um told my family in 2008 or I spoke to one of my sisters in 2008 she had mentioned about two other family members from back then who were sexually abused um, by a family uh, sorry by a neighbour um, and it's on the same road um, so you kind of um, getting back to what you were saying earlier about uh, it was very prevalent back then I mean um, that that's kind of three from one family that I knew of, do you know what I mean? So, um, but no, I mean, I, I can't really answer for my family, um, but they never gave up on me. I mean, my mum and dad would be obviously the ones that would mainly come and visit me, but it would always be my brother-in-law and my sister that would bring them up by the car, my, my sister-in-law, my brother. So there would always be family with them bringing them up. So, and I'd get letters, um, yeah, I, I recall, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I recall every single one of my family member in respect of immediate family members being there at some stage throughout that, that kind of, it lasted, that part of it lasted until I was 20. I'd come out, I'd come out a year before or just, yeah, while before that, um, long sentence, wanted to calm down, wanted, wanted to chill out, I'd had enough of life not life, but I'd had enough of in and out of jail, had enough of crime. And I and I loved, I mean, I loved my mum dearly, absolutely dearly loved my mum. And I wanted to prove to my mum that I could be a normal child. Uh, so I settled down, uh, mortgage, 
marriage, all of that sort of stuff. But then three weeks, the year I got married, 1990, uh, I got married in the April. The September was my 21st. And then three weeks after my 21st, my mum died age 59 of a heart attack. And that really did set me back again. Um, because 59, now, yeah, I may have had blinkers on to what else was going on in the family, my brothers and sisters, but as far as I was concerned, I had put my mum in that early grave. Um, my dad was a gambler uh, years before that. My dad, and there were other things that were going on. Um, we had to second mortgage the house apparently because he owed out so much money. Stuff that I didn't know about, and it's like stuff that was coming out after my mum died because I was feeling really, I suppose, sorry for myself that I'd lost my mum uh, and I wasted some years. But yeah, and then that really was the catalyst again for me just to. Go off the go off the rails again, in and out of employment and crime and prison and courts and police stations for the next twenty years, really twenty twenty what twenty four years after that from from twenty one what what was I in two thousand fifteen forty six so yeah twenty five years quarter of a century to to kind of calm down <laughs> really. So when you look at it. Really, if you analyse it, you've got, you've got two major traumatic issues, haven't you? Incidents in your life. You have the eight-year-old boy that's sexually abused, and then you have you know an early twenties, you know, still young young lad, and you lose your mom, you know, in tragic circumstances. So I think would would you would you say that those the, you know massive factors that kind of led you on that sort of life of sort of destruction, almost self destruction, wasn't it really? I, to be honest, Jim, I just think it was a stay of execution for me personally. Um, whether or not it was something that happened, maybe I was, wasn't was wired right before the sexual abuse. I don't know. I can't answer that because those things did happen. So it's very easy to go, yep, sexual abuse, meningitis, excluded from school, into care, into custody at a young age loss of my mum at a young age. I mean, I, I could easily go, there you go, people, there's my mitigating circumstances. I'm not really a bad person. But I still had agency, Jim. I weren't... I mean, I still was taking responsibility. I knew right from wrong. Of course I did. I knew what I was doing was wrong. Um, but what people don't understand is, and going back to that, yep, I, I had a great family, but I was still disconnected. They didn't want their little brother around them. Um... And I was searching for an identity. I did everything else that had been going on at that age. So when I was excluded from school and I started getting involved with people, although I was involved with people older than me before uh, before I was excluded from school, it become more of a, a daily uh, thing. Um, because at the end of the day, if you're excluded from school and you're not doing anything else, you're going to need people. The only people that you're going to find to hang around with are people that have been excluded from school or adults and adults that aren't working or adults that are going to, if you like, look towards today's kind of thing with county lines. Adults that are going to prey on the vulnerable kids that have been excluded from school have got nothing to do and give them something to do, which is crime. Um, and that's really how it all come about. Um, so, but I enjoyed all of that that side of it, knowing I was doing wrong, knowing I was breaking the law, but I fitted in. I, I, I had a family that that loved, all right, they didn't love, they weren't blood family, they didn't 
it wasn't real love, it was fake love. But as far as I was concerned, they, they loved me for who I was. They accepted me for who I was. They loved me and accepted me more and more the deeper I got involved in the crimes. Um, there, there's one thing to smash in a window and there's another thing with driving off with a £20,000 car. Um, and, and there's a difference in how the people that you're working with look at you in between and smashing a window and then going off and stealing a £20,000 car that then gets sold for scrap or gets used in another robbery or whatever. So you, you kind of patted on the back even more. You're climbing that ladder like most people climb the ladder in society. Just because it's the criminal element, you still got ladders, you still got a hierarchy. There's still the same things going on in each kind of separate worlds it's just that they're in separate worlds the, the processes are still the same um that need that want for for togetherness for love for companionship all of that exists it's just that you're in the criminal world so where you're getting it from in normal circumstances would be your brothers your sisters your mum your dad but where i was never at home and i'm not blaming my mum and dad or my sisters brothers and sisters for that but where i was never at home and i was always out um it, it, it that it was that was where my family were my family were in the parks my family were in the recreation centers my family were in the back of the stolen car that i was driving down the motorway they were never at, at weddings and things like that like, who are these people i don't know these people i was always playing up with i'd always embarrass my family uh when i look back i look back and it's like and I think it was more to do with attention seeking than anything else. So, hold on a minute. Why am I not getting what I want from you guys? I'm getting it out here. Why can't I say? And I think, again, I don't know, but looking back, I think that's why I played up as much as I did. Yeah, it's like that, um, like you say, it's that sense of belonging, isn't it? Everybody mm. wants a sense of belonging. Everybody wants to be loved. I don't care what anybody says. Everybody wants to be patted on the back and to be brought into that fold, don't know whether it's your immediate family or whether it's, you know, like you say, your your criminal family. You know that's well, just Stockholm that's just syndrome. Yeah. Sorry, Jim. Stockholm syndrome is a thing. It's yeah. a real thing. It's a recognised yeah. thing. And Stockholm syndrome is falling in love with some or, or becoming friends with someone that's taking you kidnapped, taking you hostage. Um, so I'm talking about people that I actually got on with that didn't take me hostage, that didn't kidnap me. So if you can kind of have Stockholm syndrome in such a negative situation as that. Your mate's on the street, your mate's on the street, and it's going to happen a lot easier. Hi, my name's Jim Nixon, and I've been working in antisocial behaviour for a number of years. One of the big issues facing antisocial behaviour professionals is how we effectively tackle noise complaints, and you need good tools to be able to do this. One tool that I would highly recommend is the Noise app. I've effectively used the Noise app whilst working in the housing sector and the local authority sector. And it, for me, it's the go-to tool. There's over 330 subscribing local authorities and housing associations in the UK currently using the Noise app. The Noise app was designed to relay precise information compared to traditional methods. I couldn't run an ASB team without the Noise app now. So if you want more information about the Noise app for a free trial, then contact the team on info at thenoiseapp.com today. So the period, obviously, we've just talked about, you know, mom dies, um, you're in and out of prison for a number of years. Um, you get to sort of 
from sort of like doing my research, you get to kind of a bit of a breaking point, really. And I just wondered if you could sort of tell me about the events that led up to, and obviously that last armed robbery. Um, I think it was, was it Norfolk where you were yeah. at the time? Yeah. Tell me yeah. about that. Right. Well, um, it was relationship breakdown. Um, and because of the relationship, I'd also cut all ties with everybody. So really this was the be all and end all. So I thought, don't forget this is from my perspective. I can't talk for other people that were kind of involved in the in the periphery of this. Um, but as far as I was concerned, I had nothing left. Um, I was homeless, I was on the streets, and I'd gone to the council, uh, Norwich City Council, sat down with them, started speaking to them, and they accepted me under the homeless legislation. But because most of my, my criminal history was violence, they couldn't temporary house me because of risk. Fair enough, I, I totally got that. Um, so they made an appointment for me to go back later and speak to someone from the outreach team, uh, CAPS, they're called up there. So I went back and he come and spoke to me and basically what he said to me, we, we, we were kind of talking about areas where I could go and sleep um, rough, um, but also areas where they turn up because uh, they they had a hostel, um, but to get into the hostel you have to kind of sign on every day. To sign on every day you have to they have to be confident that you are indeed homeless. So what they do is they go out every night and they need to spit uh, spot you on three consecutive nights in the same spot asleep basically. To to, to and obviously the time they they're not going to go out at six o'clock in the evening. They're going to go out at three o'clock in the morning. Um, so even that got quite annoying and it all just gives like really what oh and then um, I was hanging about um, in this I say hanging about it's, it was a homeless shelter for um, that was run by Salvation Army used to open at half eight closed at three o'clock in the afternoon you could go there wash your clothes have a shower um, have something to eat they'd give free t toast and coffee but they'd done a full English I say a full English but it was for £1.50 and that would last you the day um, we used to have a, a, a soup kitchen down in Haymarket we'd get Pret-a-Mange turn up and, and you, you'd be sitting and you'd have like chicken and avocado sandwiches really surreal it was um, and then uh, I got talking to this girl helped her out of a benefit she had mentioned to me about her brother um, what her brother was up to and that. So I ended up meeting up with her brother and he was uh, a, a, a drug dealer up in up in Norwich. I was already on drugs at that time. Um, and me and him got on really well and I ended up basically kind of staying on his floor um, and I got my drugs free and my rent was free. Um, I, it wasn't much of a, you can imagine, it was more like a squat than a flat. Um, but I used to look after the door for him and kind of used to let people in and out, um, passing drugs through, kind of holding the door to people. Um, and it was just one night, uh, been sitting up talking with my mate who I was there with and another guy. And this other guy was the best friend, small world, he was the best friend uh, of a guy that I'd recently done bird with and was really good mates with, Dean, his name was. He, he's dead now, God rest his soul. He died of an overdose. But um, he was a, a best mates with his son. So immediately there was that connection. Dean had 
gone by now. He'd, he'd taken his own life at that stage. So there was, of course, quite a deep and meaningful conversation. We were talking about prison. And it really did... It was like, why am I out here doing what I should be in now? I should be in now. I could be in there. I wouldn't have none of these worries. And I'd be in there, in prison, sorting myself out. And... Uh, the guy that I was talking to, getting early hours, it was around about half four or five, I think, run out gear. Uh, he had started to get ill. We had no money. And uh, and I, it just... <laughs> I'd love to say it was the light bulb moment. Don't forget, I was out my nut. I hadn't been asleep for days, probably been drinking as well. And what else? Cocktail of drugs. And I just thought, I know what I need to do. Uh, I need to get him money. Um, and, and it all kind of... Long, uh, it all works out that this is what I needed to do. I'm going to go and rob that shop. I've done a little bit of a recce first, come back, and I've got changed. And they said, what are you up to? Nah, and they thought I was joking. Come back, and, yeah, I've dropped some money on the table, and they've looked at me, and gone, what? And then I went into the bedroom, got dressed, and went back out again. So I wanted to get caught. Um, don't bet again. <laughs> Please don't think I was being rational here at all, um, but it seemed rational at the time. And as a, it all worked out, Jim. Um, I got myself back into prison. Um, I've seen this happen so many times, David. You know, I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from there. I've seen so many people that just get totally desperate and they just are happy in prison. They're happier in prison. They're institutionalised, aren't they? We, the thing was, Jim, if you, if you, I mean, you're going to know more than anybody, but if you look at my record um, and you, you look at the last crime I committed, armed robbery, there's a good possibility I could have got a life sentence. But for me, that was win-win. Yes, all right, fair enough, I would have spent the rest of my life in prison. That might, to some people, be the most worst thing possible. But not from my perspective, it wasn't. That would have been one of the best things possible. However, I was fortunate that... I was able to utilise prison in the way that I wanted to utilise it. Uh, and I was able to change that attitude. So, and look, you can't do it alone. I've got I've got a big up HMP knowledge for this because fortunately, in one aspect, um, where I'd been there for a number of years before, they knew who I was. And they, I suppose they could see that I was improving in prison. I was becoming a better person in prison but I was becoming a better person in prison alongside my peers in prison. I didn't really give two shits about people out here in society. Nothing I ever done in prison was about resettlement or reintegration. Everything I'd done in prison was about getting through prison. It wasn't about that day I got out, it was about tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Um, and that's what prison always become. So for me, I loved the place, absolutely loved it in there. And, um, yeah, look, I'm not some big man. Christ, three three times out of seven, I'd probably have a really bad night. Um, so it weren't, once that door shut, there's a different, completely, a different kettle of fish completely. Everyone's got front out on the landings and on the wing. But, I mean, I've seen men bigger than bears cry themselves to sleep. Do you know what I mean? So, um, but... Um, yeah, so it was it was really that that win win. I either spend the rest of my life in prison happy, um, because I still would have had contact with people. Um, I still would have seen people, 
and I'd still be doing exactly what it is that I'm doing now, which is pushing for prison reform, just that I would have been doing it from inside rather than from outside. So really, it was a, a, I had nothing to lose whatsoever. And I had nothing to lose. I was at my rock bottom. I had nothing. I had nobody. Um, I, I kind of went into prison. The only, the only possessions I had when I went into prison were a pair of socks and a pair of boxer shorts. That was it. And that's what I had on. The rest of it was was nothing to do with me. That was not mine. I had nothing, absolutely nothing. So, prison, when you kind of put it on that balance, is like the Hilton Hotel. Um, and it's you you can you can work. Prison works. Prison does work. You can work prison. You can utilize prison. You can use the resources in prison. Um, but. Having said that, you can have every single available opportunity in prison. But if you haven't got the mindset, if you haven't got the attitude, it don't matter. You went back, obviously, and I know from, again, from my research, you weren't particularly happy with the sentence that, I know we've talked about life sentences, <laughs> but you weren't actually happy with the sentence, were you? You wanted a longer sentence? Yeah. Well, it, it, it gave me the sentence I want. Um, I've done, I, I kind of played the game too well. Um, I, I don't ask me how I'd worked it out and where I'll come to that, but it was a point that I had agreed with myself that I needed five years. I needed a five-year sentence, which would have given me two and a half years in jail to sort myself out. Um, and when uh, it got to the point and I, I pled guilty and it would come down to sentencing, he started, He said, right, he said, normally we start blah, 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 seven years. I thought, sweet, takes... But what he'd done was, because I'd gone guilty and kind of stopped any victims and all of that sort of stuff, he decided to start at five years and took 25% off and give me three years, nine months. I was like, no, <laughs> I was gutted, absolutely gutted. <laughs> but uh, Jim, the, the, the day I got remanded, um, I've got my, uh, um, I've still got my reception card from when you first go into the prison, your ID card. And... It looks as if I'm getting out. That that's I mean I've got a grin for me to I'm home. It's like it's all of, you can just see the weight has gone off my shoulders because I'm finally see in, in society trying to change yourself in society is very difficult when you've got all those temptations around you. I'm not saying there's no temptations in prison, of course there are. Unfortunately, I found a few of them myself. But um, it it was it was that platform that base that i personally me david brakespeare needed in order for me david brakespeare to turn my life around um and it just so happened that that environment was prison yeah that makes total sense i mean i mean obviously you went over to norwich i think for a relationship but i've always said you know that if if you want to really sort of rehabilitate you've got to on the outside I'm talking here, you've got to really sort of completely move away from those associates that, you know, are that temptation, haven't you really? You have, but then having said that, Jim, you can't run away from yourself. I mean, I'm. we ended up moving to uh, Tyler's town in South Wales in the Ronda Valley, and um, I ended up in HMP Cardiff. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it was kind of wherever I moved, I'd end up in their prison. So you kind of get to the point where you think, do you know what? I think this might be me. <laughs> I it's think like say, I might be the common denominator in all it's of this. It's that mindset, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's like you say, I think, I think moving away helps, but like you've just said, you've got to then have that right mindset to then, you know, follow it through and 
stay out of prison basically and just stop offending and, and that's clearly at that point you weren't ready for that no look at the end of the day Jim everything starts it ends with you it's as simple as that it, it all starts with you I mean and, and I said it before you've got like you could have all of the counsellors all of the therapists all of the offending behaviour courses whatever you can all the money in the world but if you haven't got that mindset it matters not it matters not and and for me what a I don't really like that saying, if you can't, um, if a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment. Really? I mean, I've seen guys in two million pound mansions with heroin addictions, and yet I've seen a heroin addict with absolutely nothing turn his life around in prison. So is it really the environment? It's not. It comes down to the individual. We're adaptable. We're, we're, we're chameleons as human beings. We can adapt to almost any environment, and we do. That's why you've got the, the, the different climates in the UK. You've gone from minus 50 to plus 40, and people are living everywhere within those temperatures. So if you can kind of relate that to, to, to life itself, it's the same thing. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> it's funny you say that, you know, because a lot of the drug addicts that I dealt with, and I was involved in, drug, in the drug world, you know, enforcement for quite a number of years, and then I'd used to get sort of the sub stories, you know, I'm going to do it for my kids, I'm going to do it. And I used to say to people, you know what, if you're going to change, you've got to do it for yourself first. You know, you've got to do it for yourself. You've got to change that mindset. And the ones that did do that, you know, like yourself, they came through it and they and mm. they reformed. But you have really got to do it for yourself. You know, you can't do it for anybody else, can you? No, no, you can't. And on, on the flip side of that, Jim, um, if you kind of think about the Samaritans, um, that that blackmail to stop you from from committing suicide. It's like, oh, don't forget your kids. You haven't thought about your kids. What about your wife? But when you get to that situation, you kind of have, and you think you're better off without everybody. And so on the flip side of that, that that's the same kind of thing. So you go back into prison after the armed robbery. I know we've touched on light bulb moment, but. Mm -hmm. You've obviously talked about the education that you obviously then received when you were in prison and, mm -hmm. you know, you took everything that was going, basically. Was there a light bulb moment for you? Um, I don't know. It's hard. I, I kind of posted on LinkedIn the other day that um, my light bulb moment took place over a number of years. For me, prison started to kind of make sense but become comfortable. Um, in 2005, when I was in HMP Blunderstone, um, I just I've, I've been transferred from Pentonville. I was in Pentonville, just been given was it 54 months, um, and I transferred from Pentonville to Blunderstone in the January. And by the March, um, I'd got my feet under the table. I was on induction. I was working on the induction wing. This was kind of the first time that I really become part of the prison system. I've become a mentor for, I got approached by a member of staff about this new reading scheme that we had in prison called Toe by Toe um, that was created by this charity known as the Shannon Trust, I think, uh, or, or Turning Pages, whatever it was. But um, it literally was this scheme that um, prisoners who could read would teach prisoners who can't to read. 20 minutes a session, um, three or four prisoners each um, as clients kind of thing. And I had this, yeah, just it, it kind of got to the point where it wasn't about what 
I was teaching them or what they were, I was kind of learning for, off of them. It was about what I was learning about myself. Um, and because of what the feelings I was getting along with, uh, the feelings about myself, but also then that connection, that, that feeling of empathy, that understanding of those others around me, my peers, I then become a listener with the Samaritans. And, and that kind of enhanced that feeling. And that's what made me a better person because it made me more understanding, more empathetic, give me more patience, more tolerance, um, a deeper understanding to look behind the criminal and the crime rather than just, oh, he's been nicked for that. That means he's ABC. Um, and yeah, so it, it kind of stopped me from becoming blinkered. Um, it opened my eyes. But again, it opened my eyes in the wrong environment in the way that I got that connection, that want, that love, that that togetherness in the criminal world. I found all that out in the prison world. So where I become a best, uh, my the best I'd ever been, where I was a good person, where I was a, a person with more compassion was in prison. And I didn't know how to do that out here. I, 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 life out here isn't the same as it is in prison. I'd be, I couldn't become a toe-by-toe mentor, or so I thought at that point, obviously. Um, I couldn't become a toe-by-toe -toe mentor. I couldn't go and get a mentoring job with working with uh, a, a pupil referral unit. I can't do none of what I'm doing here. So as soon as I come out of prison, I become worse again because I lost all of that. I lost everything that gave me purpose. And that's what it comes round to, Jim. It was all about, say, about this light bulb moment. It was all about, hold on a minute, I've got all the answers here. And, and, and it kind of, I suppose a drugged up light bulb moment was that night just before I'd done the armed robbery. But it was all of that, that kind of from 2005 on. Um, for, I mean, from 2004 to 2013, to uh, 2012, I think 2012, 2013, I was hardly ever out, Jim. I was hardly ever out. I was, and, and they weren't short sentences. They weren't like a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there. They were, I think the shortest one I had in that period was 18 month sentence. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it was just, it was just that collection of experiences and my peers' experiences and maturity and uh, everything really just all coming together to produce where we are now. So when you came out of prison, obviously you'd done a lot of education, you'd obviously done this work with other prisoners. You just obviously mentioned then when you came out, you had a bit of a wobble. How long did it take you to kind of stabilise and realise, you know, I'm not going back? To be honest, I don't think... Um, right, I don't want to ever go back. However, I know that one mistake and I'm back. Um, I haven't got a second chance anymore. Uh, well, I, don't, I haven't had a second chance for a long time. So I need to adjust my behavior with that in mind as well. So I, I think we spoke about it when um, I went to the shop when this lockdown first happened and I nearly got into a row, um, but I walked away. I, I just told myself, this isn't worth it. And I walked away and that was huge for me um, because that enabled me to understand that. And I suppose really, I haven't been wrapped up in cotton wool when I was under my prison license or in supported accommodation and that, but I had a protective ring around me, if that makes sense. So really this is when I was living with Kelly. So I was on my own. I, I had no, I had, didn't have that immediate 
support network around me. Yes, of course I had Kelly, but um, that that kind of side of it, that that nasty side of me, if you like, that um, evil side, the the violent side, but it never come to the fore. So I've got to be very conscious of the fact that um, I know I I knew I weren't going back as soon as I got out of the probation hostels. Um, after 11 weeks once I broke the back because I've never made that before I've never got through that there was all these milestones that I so the first one for me was to get through the the bell hostels I'd been to bell hostels before on a few occasions and I ended up being recalled because I couldn't handle them and I wanted to finish my sentence off so that I could come out free um, with no restrictions and no license so um, that that for me uh which was uh bank holiday in august it was bank holiday monday i won't ever forget that because the manager of the genesis the house of genesis the supported accommodation where i went coming on the bank holiday uh just so i could move in uh on the bank holiday rather than wait until the tuesday i love her for that i still do donna love you donna um but yeah, she so she coming on that bank holiday. But that that was it. I mean, I'm not going to say things have been easy since, but that was when I knew I wasn't going back. I had broken the back, and I was ready to get on. Unfortunately, I got stuck in a supported accommodation for 20 months, and and that didn't really help the mental health. But I got through it. And no doubt, Kelly's obviously been a massive impact. You know, your partner Kelly's been a massive impact on this as well in terms of. I think helping to stabilise you as well, hasn't it? Huge, yeah, huge. I mean, it kind of it's as if this 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 um, uh, baton has been passed. It all started off with a lady by the name of Deborah Stewart, who was my uh, education manager in in Norwich, um, and I know I can mention her name because she said before in the past I'm always talking to about her anyway. Um, she really, I mean, she was a massive, she believed in me. Um, I, I'd become quite creative this time around in prison and um, she believed in me and pushed me. Um, and then uh, future projects with Laura Bloomfield. Um, she was my support network when I come out. Without Laura, I don't think I would have got through probation. Um, I don't think I would have got through my first six weeks out. I mean, I ended up getting a director's warning on my on my last night in an approved premises in Luton. And it was because Laura was on the other end of a phone, and I knew she was on the other end of a phone, that I, I, I didn't get recalled because she kept me going for that. Even though she was in Norwich and I was in Luton, she really did keep me going. And when I come back to Norwich after those six weeks, uh, I was passed on from Laura to Grace, um, who was still at Future. And then Grace kind of took me on, I suppose, until I got to the supported accommodation. It's, it's all women, It's for some reason. There's a lot of women that work in the criminal justice system. And then it was Donna, and now it's kind of Kelly. Um, it, 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 it's, but where it should be, it should be my missus and myself sort of supporting us and each other. It shouldn't be my support worker, my my supported accommodation worker, my psychiatrist, my psychologist. It sh my G shouldn't be any. Those are now there, but this is where that support is really needed. 
and appreciated from kids. I don't need a lot, Jim. I, don't, I, I really don't need a lot of support now. And I didn't then. I, I kind of just need my, held, my hand held rather than support because um, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, and even my support workers have said, it's so easy, you've just been so easy. But it was because they allowed me to be me. I didn't have to, like with probation, if you tell probation the wrong thing, you're getting recalled. But these guys, I could tell them anything. And they didn't judge me. And and they didn't, they, they just allowed me to be me. And that helped fizzle out that kind of part, that, that side of me, if that makes that, that That really did help me to sort of squash that, that fire, that, that urge to commit crime or take drugs. You just picked up on, you know, just said one thing that I think is really important, particularly when we're talking about young people as well, in terms of you said that they believed in you. And I think as human beings, when people, when we're having difficult times or any time really, when, when we know somebody honestly believes in us and you know, they want us to do well. And I always tried to have this attitude towards, you know, particularly young people when I was in the police, you know, I wanted to break down those barriers. I think that's really key, David, you know, to, in some ways, that kind of extra light bulb moment to get you to push on because of that belief. Yes, yeah, huge, Jim. Look, at the end of the day, we always say, and we've been saying it, that it comes, it doesn't matter what's on offer, it comes down to the individual if they want to change. But then if they have that intense feeling of change and reform, but there's nothing there for them. There's no one there to support them through it. There's no one, because it isn't easy um, and it doesn't happen overnight. And you do have relapses, you do fall back. Um, but it's it's that understanding, that empathy from those that I suppose have seen it themselves before and others. But when you get that belief in you, when you get that support, especially when you've been told shit your most of your life, or you're not like this, you're not like that, or you're being naughty or bad and people say, yeah, that's just like you. Um, when you got, I mean, I, I find it very difficult to, to still accept praise. Um, people, oh, you're so inspirational. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, and yet I share what I do quite a lot, especially with my, my inner circle. I mean, as you know, Jim, I, I share a lot with you um, because that's, that, that, that's all I need. I, I just need like you or, or, or Kelly or someone else. Oh, I love what you're doing here, mate. I love what you're doing. Keep going, keep going. And that just, I can't explain it. I can't explain it. And especially when it's just negative self-talk and negative talk that you've been getting most of your life. Yeah. Um, it's really easy to believe in yourself when others believe in you. And that's something that when, especially when you're coming out of the criminal justice system and you want to change your life around, you really do need that because, as I say, you got there's a lot of stigma, there's a lot of uh, discriminations to the tax. You you find that you're you're having to justify and defend and explain yourself a lot rather than kind of promote your message or your uh, 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 promote your voice that you've got. So um, that that belief is is huge. Absolutely, it's very difficult for me to believe in myself if I haven't got others believing in me, um, and that is what keeps you going. That's that, that, that support. You don't need someone giving you a million pounds. You don't need someone holding your hand every minute, every day. You just need every now and again, do you know what, Dave? I believe in you. And, and that is worth a million noughts 
in a bank account. Well, one of the things I was going to say that we've discussed this on previous episodes is that, you know, we're all human beings. We all make mistakes. And one of the big things that we talk a lot about is writing people in rather than writing people off. And I think mm-hmm. that is so important. It's one of the main things I want to get across on this podcast is that, you know, we're not going to give up on people. People do make mistakes. And if people are willing to change, then we've got to give them every single opportunity to do that, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. It's like reducing reoffending and all the talk about reducing reoffending. It's always, always going to stay a dream until we start meeting needs. Let's forget reducing reoffending. Let's forget about protecting the public. And I don't mean to say forget about protecting the public, but let's look about meeting the needs of the individual. Because believe you me, if we can meet the needs of the individuals, and if we can start doing it from an earlier age, as in early intervention with that school to prison pipeline, the sooner that we can do that, reducing reoffending will take care of itself straight away. And not only would it take care of itself, it would also take care of offending because we're dealing with the issues before they become issues. Yeah, I I think we, we me and you have talked about this privately yeah. and you know, we've said if, if we can get that right, you're not going to have a prison population or certainly not the levels that we're seeing today in 21st century Britain. You know, we've got to spend the money at that early, early intervention stage rather than spending the millions or billions of pounds that we're spending now to keep people in prison and to deal with all the reoffending. To me, it's a no-brainer, but I think yeah. we've just got to get over an awful lot of barriers before we get to that point. But for me, that and I know you feel the same, that's the right way to go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at the prison population now, let's just say for argument's sake, around the figure off, there's 70,000 adult males in prison right now. That's a potential 70,000 fathers in prison right now. Even with one child each, there's 70,000 children with uh, a six times more likely chance of following their father in a prison or mother um, than a child from the general normal population, general, whatever you want to call it, um, whether they live crime-free, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean... And that's just that, Jim. That, that's just a, having a parent in prison. Forget everything else. That's just by having a parent in prison. So if you've got five children, uh, uh, do, you know, do you know how many grandfathers, fathers, son and grandson? I, I've seen too many sets in one prison at one time. I'm not saying I've seen like hundreds, but five or six, the, the granddad, the dad, the son have been in jail. I mean, that's, that's, that's not that's not right and and that's because of that intergenerational thing and and that's something very much that we need to break and the place to break that is of course the school to prison pipeline yeah i couldn't agree with you more and we'll just keep pushing on david you know and i know we've got a number of people that we're working with at the moment that are very like-minded so you know we'll start with a success of one and then we'll build on it i think you've done an amazing um journey and you know to get where you are now is just incredible so i wanted to move on really to the present day really and just touch on the great work that you're doing presently you know if you could just tell the audience about what you're up to uh yeah well i'm linked um with an incredible organization called revolving doors agency um revolving doors agency have been around now for just over 20 years i believe it is and basically what they look at is they see it as this this 40 percent 
um, of the criminal justice system is that revolving door um, situation in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, the rest kind of, um, yeah. So yeah. So we, we we've got this kind of forty percent of society, and that's where the poverty is, the the traumas are, the 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 um, multiple disadvantages. Um, the environment, socioeconomic deprived areas. That's this is what revolving doors. If you like the forgotten voices, the lost souls. This is who revolving doors looks after, and they do it based on lived experience. We work with academics, practitioners, policy makers, decision makers, uh, 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 funders. We're working with all of these, like the NHS, Ministry of Justice, National Probation Service, to impart lived experience in. The decision-making process so that they're not just making decisions and policies based on facts and figures they're making these decisions and policies based on case studies but case studies that are face-to-face -face case studies I mean we, we had a an event this morning called the knot and it was a launch of this collection of essays that were written by academics and practitioners um, they basically were given, okay, well, you go and write off about this. They went and write off. And then they come back to the focus groups and they spoke to us with lived experience. Well, why you said that? Why have you said that? You need to put it that way. This, so it was, it, was, it was academic practitioners, the policy makers and all of that, and lived experience. Not just learning from lived experience, but lived experience learning from them as well. We're all learning from each other. Uh, and that's the way forward, Jim. It's only by together. The one thing I keep saying is about that it takes a village to raise a child. I mean, if we can obviously widen that and, and, and include all of these organisations in that as well. There's no one solution to fixing the, the problems with multiple disadvantages. And therefore, if if we want everything to be right for everybody, it's going to take everybody involved, everybody to be involved in that. We need as many voices as possible from as many groups backgrounds and there's many platforms all coming together because that's where we're going to find the solutions i i haven't got all the solutions i've got the experiences and i've got some ideas you haven't got all the solutions jim but you're coming from it from the police side of things you've got psychologists psychiatrists they haven't got all the answers you've got the prison officers you've got the prison governors they haven't got all the answers the ministry of justice the government they haven't got all the answers but between us we will we'll find the right way between us. And that's where that collaboration side of things comes in. So um, the stuff that I've been doing with Revolving Doors, it's been, it's been absolutely incredible. We've got the Liaison Diversion Service with the National Health Service, where now they're, they're, they're sitting in police stations and courts and they're diverting people early. They're signposting people to uh, uh, get their needs met early and in the community. Um, you've now got the Reconnect project, which is literally what it is. It's about reconnecting people that have disengaged from health services. And part of the issue there is coming out of jail. When you come out of jail, you fall through the gap. Reconnect's there to put that bridge. There's, there's bridges being built between the criminal justice system and society so that that gap doesn't exist anymore, so that people can transition easily from from a shit life into a normal life um with all of these agencies that are involved that are providing that safety net and that's what revolving doors are doing but then i'm also doing stuff with the university of manchester um part of the patient safety research group we're also looking at stuff um 
in respect to mental health within prisons, working with guys within prisons directly. Um, I work directly with, with guys in prison. Uh, I, I, yeah, <laughs> um, been doing like it's, it's just it's incredible. I love it. It's um, it's a, where it's a passion and it's not work. It's just it's, it's just so easy and and because of everywhere that I kind of work is all using my experience. Um, because I'm an old guy and I've got a lot of experiences, it means that I get a bigger picture of things as well. I can see that school to prison pipeline and I can see how at the age of 14 it affects you when you're 45. Um, so I, I can see all of that kind of going on. And as I say, I ain't got all the solutions, but you might have guessed I've got plenty to say for myself. <laughs> a couple of things for me. Number one, you know, incredibly important to involve people like you that have got that practical experience so often and i talk about this when i do training you know you you, you can have people sort of spout off uh, academically but you need that practical experience to come to the table to be able to sort of you know give a much better um overview of, of how you're going to change things so that's the first thing for me and then the second thing is and i talk about this a lot on this podcast is that collaboration it's about leaving those egos at the door isn't it it's about everybody kind of saying you know what i don't really care who gets the credit for this because this is about real people and this is about yeah. changing lives yeah it's not who's right it's what's right that's what yeah. we need to be working towards what is right what is right for the best of the majority as many many people as possible and if we can't fit the majority let's make sure we include the minority as well yeah that's so true we're sort of coming towards the end now, David, and I just wondered if there's anything that you wanted me to ask you that I haven't today. Um, I don't think so, mate, to be honest. I really don't think so. I think we've covered a, uh, quite a bit. I know I've gone off on a few tangents, but I do. The, the thing is, I, I, I kind of... Um, I'm glad I don't have a, a, a buffer next to me, if you like, like the missus, give me an elbow, shut up. Because I have got so much in my mind to... to for it to come out that um, I can waffle on a bit I do know but um, no I, I, I think you've asked everything Jim to be honest mate I think it's an incredible story David I think you know I know you don't like praise but I think you should be immensely proud of the way that you've turned your life around I think you give people hope and you know we look at you as a fine example of that you know and I think it gives other people who are in who've been in your position before to you know really really sort of like move on and change their lives for the better. And then the other thing I just wanted to point out to the audience was that through this journey, you know, of me first obviously contacting you and or actually I think it was the other way, I think you contacted me. We've, we've become very good friends, mm. um, you know, over uh, online and probably not many days that we don't kind of have a bit of contact with each other. So again, I just wanted to get across to the audience that no matter what our backgrounds are, you know, you can become good friends with people. You know, no one would normally put a police or an ex-police officer and an ex-criminal together as, as, as good friends. Mm. But I think our collaboration has a lot to offer. Would you not agree? Oh, yeah, definitely, Jim. Yeah, I mean, we we, we are definitely both sides of the coin um, that um, that have come together to, to for the good of all. And, and it isn't, I, I say it like that, it isn't, uh, isn't for the good of all, really. I mean... Our relationship, our relationship, <laughs> our friendships blossomed organically um, 
because neither of us has got that ego. Um, we allow each other to have a view, um, and um, I, 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 yeah, I think you're a great mate. I, I, I just um, you have <laughs> the support you. I don't think you realise how much how important you are to me, Jim. Um, and because of your background, that makes it that even more special because we shouldn't be mates. And again, that is that change is possible. If you and I can kind of put together, uh, put, put aside our differences from our backgrounds, I don't think people quite understand how much hatred I had towards the police. Um, if I can do that towards the police, then I'm sure people can take a little step back and look at people from a criminal justice background that, that have come from the criminal justice, if you like, because we're not all bad, not really. Um, bad decisions, bad choices, but bad people? I don't think so. Unmet needs. Let, let, let's get these needs met. Let's make sure that we can remove these hurdles and obstacles for everybody in life let's let's kind of give everyone a fair chance in life let's let's remove these life chances that huge life chances that there are and and that's what gives me hope because i can become friends with a copper <laughs> no i think it's incredible mate and i you know certainly class you as a really good mate and you know i'm i'm, I'm excited for the future you know in terms of what we can achieve with not just me and you, but the group of people that we're now working with to really make that difference. And as I say, mm. you know, work on the success rate of one and we'll move on from there. Yeah, of course. How can people um, reach out to you, David? Because, you know, I'm really keen for people to sort of, you know, keep on, you know, contact with you and uh, maybe carrying on the conversation outside the podcast. Oh, God bless them after that waffle. <laughs> um, yeah, you can get me on, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and that's it really i only use linkedin and i've got my own blog site that i i blog from journeywithfourman.net um yeah that's that i i i'm i'm kind of um uh not so, so social media heavy these days I, I focus on linkedin and as you know jim that's where we met linkedin it's an incredible platform for what we're both doing um oh, mate um I'm not here to advertise, but LinkedIn has changed my career yeah. and my life really over the last sort of couple of years. 100%. So I just can't, I can't speak highly enough for that platform. I mm. think it's a brilliant, brilliant um, social media platform. Um, but look, David, thank you so much for coming on today. I've absolutely loved this interview. I think you've been so open, so honest, and you just really do give people hope um, for change. So thank you very much for coming on. And thank you, Jim. I really do appreciate that, mate. And, no, cheers. Um, sorry for the bit of it. As I say, it's been a long day, so sorry for the waffle. <laughs> Not at all. Um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the Community Safety Podcast. We really do want you to get involved in our mission. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. Um, we will make a difference as we move forward. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. I've been so impressed with David Breakspear to spend the majority of your adult life in prison, but then to have that light bulb moment and to make really rose in turning your life around, but not only just turning your life around, but now working to look at prison reform 
and to make a real difference. I wish David the best of luck for the future because I know that he will be an amazing success. So if David can do it, other criminals can do this too. And it gives us hope that we can help transform communities in the 21st century. Thank you so much again for listening to the Community Safety Podcast. We really do appreciate your support. Please rate, subscribe and review the podcast. And also a new little um, add-on is the Buy Me A Coffee. It costs quite a lot of money to run this podcast. So if you could look at our website, www.thecommunitysafetypodcast.co.uk forward slash donate. If you could afford a few pounds just to uh, assist the podcast to keep going, we would really appreciate it. And we'll catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Community Safety Podcast. With thanks for support from St. Ives Chambers, RHE Global and Me Learning. Join us again next time to help us explore how we can transform our communities in the 21st century. century. And the Community Safety Podcast with Jim Nixon. Jim Nixon.